Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Matthew Massey from Champagne Madame Zero coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She is a brand ambassador for a craft syrup company and the consultant who has created the beverage programs for a number of successful bars and restaurants. Linda Salinas, welcome back to the show. How are you? Freaking awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Spring Branch Bar and Restaurant The Branch suddenly closed last week. Owner Kyle Pearson told Houston Food Finder that the restaurant simply didn't generate enough revenue to be profitable. Linda, I I think this caught a lot of people by surprise because Kyle, one of the things Kyle did really well as the owner of the branch was he was very active on social media. He was constantly posting and not just about his restaurant, but also like about other places to go in spring branch, you know, Oh, have you tried this new kolache place or have you had these tortas or this taco? You know, he was, he was a good advocate for his neighborhood. And so, you know, unlike the Facebook foodie groups and stuff like that, people would always recommend the branch, you know, where can I go for after work happy hour? Where can I go for chicken fried steak, whatever, whatever. So it, it had that kind of social media cachet, but it doesn't really seem like it was able to translate that into sales. So let me throw it to you, having said all that, what do you think about the branch as a, as a business and Kyle's social media behavior? Why, why wasn't he able to translate that following into dollars? I mean, I just really think that I, from what I remember, branch was a craft beer place. And so was Shoot the Moon was supposed to be kind of like, beer heavy and I just think that that neighborhood needs something that's really food and and kind of family forward or you have to be on the other flip side very like mm, I guess kind of niche and it just seems like all the great ethnic food in you know on long point and just in that general area does they do very well but just being like a i mean i hate to say this but a, a, a generic you know craft beer hang I, I just i don't i don't see that that working out very well out there yeah i mean just to sort of get specific about it long point has long been known for you know just like it's the heart of korean restaurants in houston yeah and and obviously there's been some successful mexican restaurants that had been there for a number of years. And right, Kyle was trying to do something different, kind of a, you know, he worked at Hay Merchant for a long time. And I'm not going to say it was his version of Hay Merchant, but it it was that kind of craft beer oriented community bar that he kind of thought would appeal to, you know, young professionals or or maybe even like be a little bit family friendly. And it it just doesn't quite, I mean, it, it stuck around for five years, but it just doesn't seem like it ever really caught on the way he he envisioned it when he started. Yeah, and I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, Hey Merchant had a really great success for several years, but, you know, that movement has moved on. There's more options for people to drink. I mean, even um, the beloved Ginger Man and the beloved um, Flying Saucer has brought in cocktails. So I just think that that little niche of, of, uh, of spots or, or, you know, like you just have to diversify. So, and I think that those, both of those spots were very, were pretty big. And unless you're going to have a, an outstanding food program and that really stands out, I think it's a, it's a hard sell. Well, and, and just to get specific, I mean, the beloved ginger man is closed, right? Hey, merchant is closed. So, I mean, the, the ginger, there's a gingerbread, a ginger man in, um, in Dallas. And that doesn't, that doesn't count. We don't live there. Well, I'm but we're talking about we're talking about restaurants in Houston, right? Like, I, I yeah, my, but I'm my just saying assertion, like as a movement in whole. Yeah, but my assertion is that the craft beer scene in Houston has sort of shifted to these breweries, right? These small neighborhood breweries. Even in Spring Branch, there's Four J, and that you know the the craft beer bar as a concept maybe has kind of run its course just in terms of what I think so. In terms of what people like, and so yeah, I mean. 
you know, certainly the branch had cocktails. It, it, it had a full liquor license, but Kyle had that kind of craft beer background and that's the way that I thought of it. I can't, I can't speak to how anybody else thought of it. And you know, the same thing with shoot the moon, they had cocktails, they had spirits, they had wine, but it was primarily, you know, Kevin Floyd also formerly of Haymerchant, had that kind of craft beer background. That was the reputation and that was kind of the pitch. And I don't know if it's like a citywide thing or a spring branch thing or whatever, but that's two sort of craft beer oriented concepts that have closed within a couple of months of each other. But, but I, I don't think it's saying anything about the neighborhood necessarily because we know a lot of smart people that are investing some serious money into opening in Spring Branch, you know, none more prominently than Christine Ha and her husband, John Sa. They're bringing the blind goat to the neighborhood uh, in the same shopping center as Fiji's Barbecue. And that's yeah. coming pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I do. I haven't done consulting in, in, a, in, in a minute, but whenever I've, I have done consulting, the other you know, is literally no more than five to eight percent of all sales alongside with food i I mean personally like i've I've been talking to a couple of people about maybe stepping back into the ring of consulting and like you know i've had someone kind of pitch me a hey let's do a beer garden i'm like boo boo i I don't know how i don't know where you're trying to pull this this concept because it's just not i don't i don't see it i don't see it people driving to it so um yeah i mean it is what it is and and just to be explicit for everyone listening to this yes that means you can dm linda about working for you as a consultant she's available <laughs> just, just to be explicit all right topic number two armando's owners cinda and armando palacios announced that they are bringing manditos their casual tex-mex concept to bel-air linda i I have to, this is, this is where I admit something that may shock you. I have never been to Armando's. So I don't, I don't quite have the context for Armando's versus Mandito's, which currently there's a location in round top. Uh, it's coming to Bel Air. I, I don't know. Just, just uh, tell me what you think about Armando's and the idea of bringing a casual Tex-Mex restaurant to the city of Bel Air. I think it's very interesting. A, because Armando's is not, casual armando's is upscale i mean i think armando's has like a 50 a 50 dollar margarita on the menu like there's nothing cat there's there's not much casual about it you know it's in it's in the heart of river oaks it's always been like um it's your, it's your thursday night dance party spot and and i asked when they sent the they sent the press release to me about this i said why not armando's why manditos and they said armando's is one of one Right, yeah. we're not yeah, trying yeah. to replicate that. We're going to leave mm-hmm. the white tablecloths in River Oaks. We're going to do something much more casual, lunch and dinner, family friendly in Bel Air, and that makes sense to me. That that's a fit for Bel Air. Yeah, and I mean, and I think that there's a lot more families in Bel Air. There's a lot of kids. There's a lot of soccer moms, and you know, and and I mean, I think it just it makes more sense. But I'd like to see what that really looks like. Like, is it going to be like? Los Tios? Is it going to be like Escalantes? Like, what kind of Tex-Mex are we talking about? So I'm excited to see what they have. Right. I do think that's a good point, right? Is it um, now, what's the one with the where the with the sandbox where the kids run around and the giant tortillas? Why can't I? Oh, that's so bad. Lupe. 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 Tortilla. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> could it be could it be a Bel Air? Right. Because there's not thinking about kind of that neighborhood. There, there's the Los Tios on Beechnut. But uh-huh. then beyond that, there's not really, there's not a Papacitos, there's not an El Tiempo, there's not any of these sort of obvious competitors yeah. in the immediate area. And so there is a space for them to to be successful, I think. And you're right. I think it comes down to execution and atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, topic number three, I wanted to note that Chef Ben McPherson, most recently of Bo Pasta, is opening Reset a nightclub devoted to house music in Midtown. Linda, we don't talk about nightclubs very often, but, you know, we know Ben a little bit. He's been, he's worked all over the place as a chef. This is a a new direction for him. And I talked to Ben and I was like, what is your, like, what is your your history with this music? He's like, well, I had a, you know, I worked at clubs in Atlanta when I was younger. 
you know, I've DJed some and I've traveled all over the world to see DJs perform. And so I have a sense of what makes for a successful club. And, and he's working with uh, John Stewart, who was one of the managers at Blue Doran and is an experienced bartender. And, and I talked to John and John says he wants, you know, easy drinking cocktails, stuff that can be made quickly, some non-alcoholic options e- even so that, you know, people who are coming to dance and get sweaty, stay hydrated. So tell me what you think. I mean, are you ready to get your groove on at reset? I guess that's, that's really the question. I mean, so I don't really know what Ben's role is. I'll be honest with you. I do know that John has actually DJed John Stewart and Actually, he and I were talking about frozen cocktails and draft cocktails a couple of weeks ago. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm excited to see what John's spin on things. John actually comes from from craft, from high volume craft. He worked at Wooster's, I think. And so I think that seeing what that space is going to look like and what that ambiance is. I mean, I look, freaking club money. <laughs> nightclub money is outrageous outrageous and so elevating that without being too fussy is going to be a tricky thing to to do so i'm excited to see what those two have have cooking yeah i mean this is this is obviously not my world but but like i said i've known ben right i met ben when uh when batanga first opened in 20 20- 2013. So I've known Ben for almost 10 years and, and I've always found him to be, you know, really passionate about food and craft and, and ingredients and sourcing and, and all that kind of stuff. And so if he brings that same discipline to reset, right. Sourcing a great audio system, curating a good guest experience, booking talented DJs locally, nationally, whatever, I think it's going to be just fine. And it's got this, it's got this cool kind of space with a rooftop patio uh, that looks out on the skyline. Like I said, this is not my scene, but having, having talked to him and heard how passionate he is about it, I'm excited for him. And I, and of course I wish him nothing but success. All right, Linda, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. podcast is brought to you by Green Street. Located in the heart of downtown Houston, Green Street celebrates delicious cuisine, exciting entertainment, and live music, all in a vibrant urban setting. Green Street is the perfect spot for a dinner and drinks before or after a big game downtown. Grab a bite al fresco from on-site restaurants such as Guadalajara del Centro, The Palm, House of Blues, or MS Seafood Steaks and Oysters. Now, I'll have to say, I had the opportunity to visit The Palm which relocated to downtown last year. It's an exciting update to just a classic Houston steakhouse, still with the prime steak, still with the giant lobsters, but in a refreshed and updated atmosphere. If you're not coming for dinner or after dinner, enjoy a drink and live entertainment from Pete's Dueling Piano Bar, or grab your friends and head to 810 Billiards and Bowling for a night of fun. Whatever the occasion, make Green Street your downtown destination of choice. Located at 1201 Fannin Street, go to GreenStreetDowntown.com to see a full list of bars, restaurants, and entertainment destinations. That's GreenStreetDowntown.com. Linda, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to talk to you about two places. Let's start with Dinette. This is the new Vietnamese restaurant in the Heights. I had the owner, Jason Andaya, and executive chef Cole Huang on the podcast recently to talk about Dinette, and I thought it was interesting. Cole talked about you know, his experience working for Christine Ha at the Blind Goat and Sin Chow, and how he wanted to bring some kind of northern Vietnamese influences to the menu, but also like bring a fresh perspective to, to dishes that we know, you know, vermicelli, bonzeo, pho, all that kind of stuff. So let me just ask you, having eaten there... How do you think they did? I mean, is this is this a restaurant that you would go back to? Yeah, I, I actually really loved. I don't know if anybody, if you, if your listeners know this, I love 
Vietnamese food. It's literally my, I could eat Vietnamese food every day. So I'm a really big fan of anyone doing it just like as a whole. I think that it was very close to a lot of the dishes that I've seen at Sing Chow and Blind Goat. But we also got to try things that I we'd never tried before. We had a really fantastic mushroom salad that was really excellent. I just really liked the ingredient use at Dinette. Like everything was really fresh. Nothing was over the top, but really subtle, clean flavors. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. We had, you know, we had the egg rolls. Like, I mean, that that mushroom salad was definitely a standout. It comes in that kind of oversized sesame cracker with all the fresh herbs. And and the way it's sort of presented, you kind of have to dig into the, you know, your your chopsticks kind of pull out. Oh, you know, I got a little mushroom. I got a little fried tofu. I got some herbs. It's like a little bit of an adventure kind of digging through it, which I I really appreciated. We had, um, you know, the, the general manager recommended a piece of fish that we we really liked it kind of had that that sweet sour you know vietnamese perspective really well executed uh i thought it was i thought it was very successful you know and and very flavorful and and the kind of place that uh and very affordable you know for the most part right the dishes were all kind of teens for the most part entrees maybe in the 20s but at a time when prices are up it's pretty reasonable and and you know maybe the one other thing i would say is just like hondo they get the cocktails right and and I had one that had a, a like a rum cocktail with pandan in it. You know, there's a, a tequila cocktail with a coffee flavor, all like or bole bitters rather. I mean, you know, there's all these kind of smart smart drinks that pair really well with the food. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's upscale Vietnamese food because it's not traditionally a lot of Vietnamese food that we see in Houston. It's very inexpensive, and there's no cocktails. It's generally like a lunch. Spot. And so it's really refreshing to see a program, um, a food program that has uh, cocktails that really stand up. You know, I think that Sing Chow did it first. And it's nice to see that there's someone else that's pushing that envelope. And so I'm really excited for them to um, open up for lunch, too. I think we were we discussed um, when they were going to open up for lunch and they're just trying to get, you know, staff just like everybody else. But I think it's going to be a really great uh, dinner spot as well. Yeah, no, it's got to, it's, you know, I, I know, I know what you like in restaurants, right? It's, it's dimly lit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty intimate. It's bar focused. It's casual. The service was warm. Our server was super knowledgeable. You know, anytime we ordered a dish, she said, okay, well, just so you know, it comes in this preparation with these elements. It's like, yeah. Okay. But yeah, you know, I appreciate the kind of attention to detail. I like knowing that stuff. And I, I know other people do too. So, so yeah, all of that was to the good, you know, and, and I will say, I mean, I've enjoyed Hondo quite a bit since it opened. And so I'm, I'm excited to see this evolve too. Cause I, I think this is a nice compliment to the Heights. I, I do think it's interesting. It's in the same shopping center as Crawfish Cafe, but, but that's a different style of Vietnamese food, right? These two can exist in the same shopping center and satisfy different cravings. And, and that's the, the beauty of, you know, the diversity of Houston is that we have diners who understand that different different restaurants will serve different dishes. 100%. All right. And then for restaurant number two, I want to talk to you about Quixote, the raw seafood and cocktail bar inside the Toasted Coconut. Listeners may remember that, that Quixote existed for about six weeks in early 2020. Uh, and then it went away at the start of the pandemic because it really is just a it's a bar. You know, it's like a 20 seat bar and for, you know, reasons of social distancing and and staffing and and everything else, it was not viable until now. But Martin Steyer has brought it back. He's working with Madeline Lester, who's a chef who'd been working in Nancy Sussel for a long time. And Elena Van is the new head bartender doing all the cool, um, not just tequila, not, not even just agave based cocktails, but she's using... Other Mexican spirits. Uh, we had a, a martini with a, a Mexican oh, gin. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to let you talk. I'm going to let you talk about it. Just but but you know she's really like trying to show the the breadth of what Mexico is producing for us. And Martin's got all the the cool like cold seafood dishes. You know tuna pastor, and uh, we had a, a wonderful shrimp cocktail, and or a you know campechana style cocktail. And of course you know the pozole was a staple on the old menu that's back. 
so let me just throw it to you. Like, what did you think of Coyote? I really love that it was it was tiny. It was intimate. You could ask questions about back of our spirits. Uh, I know that a couple of, of our other friends were asking about some mezcal from all over, not just from Oaxaca. That martini, it is probably my favorite gin martini in the city. And, and I think Elena put it best. This Mexican gin made by a woman did the heavy lifting. Wonderful, bright botanicals. And with this really fantastic brine. I love that style of, of, of service. They, they, weren't, they weren't trying to be a Mexican bar. They weren't trying to be a mezcal spot. They weren't trying to do any of that. They're, they're playing records with, you know, classic American music and some really great dishes. I, I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. Well lit. And I think that, you know, like, I don't expect everyone to go to this spot because it's not for, it's not, I don't think it's, not for everyone, but it's just a well curated room and menu. You know, I, I had this kind of ongoing, we, you know, we've had this ongoing conversation uh, on social media about the, the balance between a restaurant wanting to be creative and doing its own thing and having a perspective, like a creative perspective, but also like serving your diners well, you know, like, like being willing to cook a steak well done, for example, or you know, giving people like a, a barbecue restaurant that, that gives people sauce, right? You, you know, like they don't, they don't, they're not going to slather the meat and sauce for you, but if you want sauce, the sauce is there and the sauce is good and it works with the meat, right? It has, you know, you do these things with integrity for people, even if they're quote unquote, breaking the rules of how a chef would like you to eat their food. And, and so I, I like this because it, it's, it's very intentionally not for everybody. Loud rock, loud classic rock on the stereo basically only raw, you know, meat and seafood preparations, you know, a very focused cocktail list, you know, shoulder to shoulder, uh, counter style seating, but that's okay. And, and you can kind of take it or leave it and, and it's small. So they don't, you know, they don't need to have a hundred people come through that space every night, right? They need 25 people or 30 people or whatever, you know, four nights a week to say, I want a cool, curated, Mexican-inspired, intimate experience. And and they can do that for them. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I think that there's a there's a, a, a spot for education. And then on the other side, there's hospitality. And I think hospitality should, should always come first. And I think that hospitality isn't just for, isn't just for, the guests it's for them it's for the staff it's for everyone like you know i think a good owner for successful bars and restaurants is an owner that can be hospitable to their staff too elena van is venezuelan and she is oh like you know since i've I've very first met her she's very passionate about south american spirits mexican spirits and so she's she's opening up her own eyes in the best way possible, how she wants to curate, you know, that, that menu. Well, and, and, I, and, and we're looking at this back bar of maybe three or four dozen different spirits. Yeah. And, and said, have you tried them all? And she goes, yeah, because of course she has, because this is like a very special place and she's not going to put anything on that back bar that she can't tell you about and doesn't believe it. So that all makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And then let me just ask you about one other thing. And I, I don't want to get I don't get too in the weeds of this, but but I, I guess we should notice that Martin Steyer is a white guy making Mexican inspired food. And and I understand that as a white guy, I don't get to have an opinion about this, but you <laughs> are a Mexican woman, a, a woman of Mexican heritage, and you've been to Mexico a lot and you feel very close to it culturally so let me just ask you is that okay like are you cool with martin making pozole and tuna pastor and and everything and vuvula and vuvula vida i mean like is that is that okay um yeah i think it's absolutely okay i think it's absolutely okay because it's celebrating dishes that he likes too no one said anything you know when bobby hugel 
opened up pastry war. You know, it wasn't like, hey, white guy, you can't do that. No, it's a celebration in these spaces. And so whoever does, whoever wants to come in, you know, bark up that tree, then you better come with a real strong heritage thing. You know what I mean? Like, don't, I don't, I don't, I'm tired of people getting on the woke train and not really being, being understanding of what that really fucking means. So let's celebrate. It's just food. It's just fucking drinks. And just do it well. You know, I think that is a perfect place to wrap this up. Linda Salinas, well said. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. I'll see you soon. All right. I'll be right back with Matthew Massey. I'm joined this week by Matthew Massey. He is the owner of Champagne Madame Zero, an artisanal champagne house. Matthew, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me. Doing well today. Thanks for doing this. I always like to kind of start at the beginning of a of a person's uh, sort of career. So, so just tell me a little bit about kind of where you're from and and how you got interested in in the wine world. Yeah, it's a great question because you think champagne and you immediately think about, um, you know, the bling and the luxury, but uh, it all really started out on the island. Uh, My dad was in the Navy and he met my mom who was born on the island in Galveston, Texas, that is. And uh, I'm a BOI as well, or born on the island. But uh, yeah, I grew up there on the West End. uh, And uh, we didn't have air conditioning for the first 13 years of of living. So uh, it was interesting growing up on the island. I really enjoyed it. I was a beach baby. Um, I've always been really big into cars. And uh, when I got to the age uh, that I could do valet parking, I started working at the San Louis Hotel, and it was uh, my dream job at the moment, Uh, but quite exciting working there. Uh, Sandra Bullock came in one evening, and it was my turn after about three months of working there, and uh, all the guys were jealous because I was able to valet the car uh, and able to take them up to their room, take their luggage up, that is. Uh, but they wanted to go downtown. So I took them downtown, but I didn't just take them downtown in any vehicle. And ultimately, um, I, little did I know, but when Sandra Bullock had come in, that was going to be the end of my career at the San Louis because I took them in the Bentley. And little did I know, I didn't have insurance with that car. The no insurance. And not having a manager on duty ended up leading leading to me getting dismissed from that role. Um, so you're asking probably why am I telling the story about the about Sandra Bullock and working at the San Luis Hotel? But that's what really led me into wine. That was when the seed was really planted. I would say initially with Madame Zero, or really in the wine world, because it led me into the restaurant business as I continued to work for my first car. Um, so that was a, that was a pretty exciting start to having to kind of make my way into the restaurant business. Uh, and I started out at a little Italian restaurant, which some folks will remember called Luigi's, uh, Ristorante Italiano, uh, on 25th and Strand, I'm sorry, 24th and Strand, uh, right there, downtown Galveston. I, right. I mean, that was a, you know, I, you know, I remember going to Galveston in like the early 2000s and, uh, you know, Luigi's had, had, was a staple even back, you know, had been a staple even back then. And, and you know, I, I briefly relocated to Houston, but it was it was, you know, one of those like very well regarded Galveston restaurants. Like, you know, if I don't want to eat seafood tonight, where can I go? And Luigi's had had one of those like like Rudy and Paco's. Right. Like it, it had that reputation of being um surprisingly you know better better than you would expect for a a a small town like Galveston absolutely and it's it's funny you mentioned Rudy and Paco's because my my best friend worked at Rudy and Paco's and I worked at Luigi's and um you know we get together before work we get together after work 
Uh, and then we both moved to Houston and he at one point went for his master sommelier was studying up for it at the age of 22. And, uh, that was, that was really when we both got entrenched into wine. So, uh, it's, it's interesting how we both had that start in the Galveston restaurant industry. And, and then we got further immersed into it, uh, as I moved up to Houston for college and I moved him up here as well. Uh, so we could both, both get our education and continue on in the, in the fine dining community. Right. But you didn't, I mean, you didn't go straight from college into restaurants, right? You, you took a different path. Yeah. Well, I actually did both in parallel. I I worked in the restaurant industry. I worked on my college degree. My focus was to get into wine distribution uh, at the end of that degree. And one of the things that really got me was I had kind of an aha moment when, um, my, my best buddy, Kelly Finn, he was studying for this, uh, this sommelier test and we were trying some of these wines and it dawned on me that neither of us had ever traveled to any of these terroirs of the world, uh, whether it be uh, trying Bordeaux or whether we were trying uh, Champagne or any of the key terroirs of the world from South Africa uh, on through South America. We had never we had never traveled. So it really drove me to wanting to travel, inspiring both of us to really get out to California, which was kind of our our easiest path to take initially. Uh, he ended up working for a vineyard out there, and I ended up joining him one summer. But um, it was exciting because that, that really was the gateway to us traveling to Italy and some of these other great terroirs in France. Um, but I knew that when I got that degree – uh, wine distribution world was going to be the place for me. Little did I know I was making more money in a restaurant business than I would be making in wine distribution. So um, after interviewing with a couple of the big distribution houses, I made that deci- decision uh, that I was going to have to basically park wine as a hobby similar to how a guitarist would put his guitar up deciding that it's probably not going to be the career for him. And I I decided I was just going to collect wine and travel the world in oil and gas. And I worked really hard to get into the uh, offshore oil and gas space. And I wanted to do international business and really focus on trying to tie in uh, some of the great terroirs of the wine world with the oil and gas business. And that effectively was, was what I, I ended up doing. I mean, it's been about an 18 year journey um, since I got out of school of being able to travel and, and really trying to carve that path of, of exploring the different terroirs of the world. All right. So, so basically, I mean, so you were, you were working in the energy, energy industry. You had a passion for wine. You were able to travel. Um, most people who have that kind of life experience don't then launch a champagne brand, right? They, they become collectors or, or something like that. So, so how did, how did you make that transition from, I love wine. I want to study wine. I, you know, I want to drink as much great wine as I can find to, I, I'm going to open a winery. I'm going to, I'm going to start a, a company. So it didn't start off project-wise. It didn't start off looking at uh, the aspects of how we commercialize and, and develop something that we believe is, is truly special. Um, but early days, it, it really was trying to understand champagne more as a wine of place as opposed to wine of style. So when you think about champagne, traditionally speaking, you think about uh, you think about a style of wine. You don't think about a specific... Uh, village that it might be from, such as, uh, you know, Left Bank Bordeaux, that's very specific on place, or some of the great Italian wines of the world, uh, whether it be a Barbera or Barbaresco, it's very specific um, where that where that exact varietal, where that grape grows, uh, that has that designation. So with Madame Zero early days, was really trying to understand the 319 villages in Champagne, uh, I didn't get around to every one of them, but I was trying to individually understand how different grapes thrive with with different in different villages, 
uh, with the varying soils, with the varying conditions, uh, and ultimately why is champagne so highly blended? As in the big houses, you start seeing 60 to 100 villages blended in um, to a specific, uh, a specific brand, and you don't really have any idea of What's in the bottle in terms of varietal could be Pinot Noir blended with Pinot Meunier and Chardonnay, but you don't know what bits or what percentages, you don't know what village it's from. Uh, so with Madame Zero, shape after a while of exploring I and mean, going back 10 years, really trying to understand these different villages, um, you start to personally take a liking to different styles, uh, different villages. Um, and ultimately, after this exploration in Champagne, one thing I figured out was that I didn't believe that there was anything in the market that really is at the level of standard that I truly appreciate uh, for a non-vintage Champagne. Well, well, let me so let that, me just let me just slow you down just for one one quick second, right? Because sure, you know the the reason like these big Champagne houses blend from multiple villages is because they want it to be consistent from year to year, batch to batch, right? Like if, if to use a very extreme example, you know, Veuve Clicquot needs to taste like Veuve Clicquot, whether it's, you know, 2022 or, or 1997 or, or, you know, it, it, people, people buy that product expecting it to taste a certain way. So, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily like the wrong thing to do, but, but maybe just explain why, why you went a different direction. Yeah, it's, it's a great point you mentioned there, Eric. So I think with, and, and the reality though, and some people potentially could challenge me on this, but even even a bottle of Vuv, if you have a bottle of Vuv two years ago versus a bottle now, they, it's wine, so it's always evolving in the bottle. I mean, they are going for a consistency in terms of style, uh, and they are blending for that purpose. But one of the key drivers for blending is that they're they're essentially buying grapes all throughout Champagne, um, and ultimately um, they're adding in that that dosage, that sugar at the end of their process to achieve balance. Uh, depends on the house, but sometimes it's a lack of aging, sometimes it's a lack of quality, and in some instances it's a combination of both. Um, but ultimately that we ended up having and that I ended up having with the project in the early days uh, was really to, to define the right terroir, the right village, uh, to really take a very focused approach um, where we could maintain consistency with the style that we're delivering into the market. But we ultimately uh, could be more of a wine of place. Uh, we can be very transparent in what we're putting in the bottle in terms of aging, in terms of the grape varietal, um, and it ultimately started out with finding the right partner, uh, on the, on the grower side that had the capability to grow beautiful fruit, um, that had enough patience where we could go through this extended aging process, which is five years for our non-vintage. Um, and then, you know, ultimately you've got to have the right winemaker on board to collaborate with that understands the progressive expression of champagne we're going for that understands okay we're trying to get away from sugar we need to have the right balance uh we need time we need amazing fruit uh we need exceptional balance and we need to manage our acidity um and and release the champagne at the optimal time and and ultimately that's what it took was was finding the right partner initially on the grower side uh, and then the rest of the team really came together. Uh, but with that being said, Virtu is really where that's where our, our home is. That's where we uh, where we grow the beautiful fruit uh, and we're growing beautiful Chardonnay. And that's that's really what we focus on with a touch of Pinot Noir that will be going into the rosé that will be releasing later this year, as well as the vintage. All right. So what was it about Virtu specifically? You know, like you said, you traveled all these villages, you tasted all this different wine. What was it about for two that made you think this is this is where I want to be? So when you when you think about uh, Cote Blancs and you think about and you start exploring the different terroir from Avise to Cremant um, and you work your way down and you get down into Lemonil, 
Um, Lemonil wines are absolutely beautiful. Um, Lemonil is very coveted for Chardonnay, such as uh, Krug's Clota Manil. Amazing, amazing fruit. Uh, but typically, you need more age. Uh, I believe with Lemonil, you, you need eight to 10 years to achieve uh, perfect balance. The likes of Salon are from Lemonil, and this is next door to Vertu. Well, the limestone in Vertu is optimal for um, a moderate, uh, the moderate chalky style that you end up getting. Um, and ultimately, you end up getting these beautiful flavors uh, with Vertu Chardonnay. And that is pr- the majority of the plantings in Vertu are Chardonnay. Uh, but ultimately, you start getting a lot of beautiful tro- tropical fruits, uh, rich ripe citrus. Um, but you don't need the time like you need in Lemonil. So that's why, you know, five years versus a traditional non vintage champagne at 12 to 24 months is extended age. And that is quite a bit of time when it comes to non vintage champagne. But versus something like a Lemonil wine, where you're looking at eight to 10 years. Um, we believe that we could achieve perfect balance without having to get beyond that five-year marker. And then, you know, you said you had to find the right, the right winemaker. Who is, who is the winemaker and what, what kind of sold you on working with him or her? Yeah. So my winemaker partner, he's, he's really stayed, he's out of the project in terms of visibility with, with his name. Um, because this is something that we've done together as a collaboration and, he hasn't. He he doesn't want to be in the spotlight, uh, which I entirely understand. Uh, some of the drivers is we've you know we won a couple of awards, and he's not really wanting to be showcased in the market uh, with his name as as the winemaker. He's he's just he's he's low key with his approach into into marketing and and things of that nature. Um, but ultimately, with him being from Vertu, uh, with him understanding the ground grapes, the soil. Um, and he's, he's really focused on the lower dosage. Uh, his focus is the focus that we have as a brand. Uh, and I knew that early days that it was going to be when we started talking, he understood that we were trying to go for a progressive expression of champagne, uh, that we really wanted the Chardonnay to thrive. And that's really how he grew up early days in his career is, is working around uh, and, and only within Vertu, um, being from Vertu, this was, this was basically the optimal type of project for him to undertake. So, uh, it's been pretty amazing because we started out early days. Um, and even when we got to four years, he was very confident that we were in the right position, but that's when COVID hit. So we decided to go to a fifth year. And I think that that was really a, a phenomenal decision uh, that he helped push me on because that's what really gave us, uh, I think, the balance to stand out as we continue to roll our inventory at, on a five-year basis. All right. So, I mean, this is, this is a long-term project. It takes a lot of time to come to fruition. You, you finally get to the point where you have wine in the bottle. How's it going? Like, what's the, what's the reception been like? Because... You know, when I think about champagne, I mean, everybody, everybody has a favorite, you know, at at all price points, everybody, you know, there's a lot of competition, obviously, there's a lot of famous names uh, with big marketing budgets. So how do you, how do you sort of approach people and be like, hey, I know you like whatever champagne you love, but give this a try because I think you might like, you might like this even better. Yeah, so I think, Eric, that's a great question. And ultimately, we've our best way to introduce people to the wine is to give them a sample and do a lot of tastings. Um, and we've had some phenomenal feedback. So we started out last year, late in the year, submitted our samples to the Rodeo and Cork Wine Competition. Uh, we also submitted to the Somalia Choice Awards out in San Francisco. So we wanted to get te- the, the industry, industry's technical credibility uh, on board while we continue to do tastings in the market, do events, uh, and ultimately winning the silver medal at both of those really helped give us 
um, the transparency in the market and it helped elevate our profile, um, which was great. But at the end of the day, I think it's extremely important uh, that the champagne is introduced appropriately. So from there, it's really been a lot of uh, a very interesting discussions and feedback from people that do like the big brands. Because as you indicated, everyone has a favorite brand, whether it be a grower style, which is along the lines of what we're developing here, or whether it happens to be a big house. Um, so our first, our first out of the box experience was uh, with a boozy. We did 16 cases our first month um, and the servers have tried all the great champagnes that Abuzi has in house and uh, they had really great feedback. So they, they helped us sell it into the market. Um, a lot of tables were ordering that second bottle and these are tables that normally enjoy uh, the yellow label. So it was really, really exciting to see what transpired at Abuzi. Um, we got going with, uh, several of the, the big restaurants here in town that, that thrive, uh, such as restaurants like mad by the glass, uh, Stella's at the post Oak has us by the glass. Um, and on the, by the glass basis, we've just, we've been able to introduce a, a large amount of folks here in the city, uh, into the champagne and into the style, uh, that we're putting into the market. It doesn't have that bitter finish. So um, with a lot of the tastings we're doing at Specs uh, throughout the city, the feedback's just been, it's been wonderful. And I think the whole tagline that we have, which is embracing selectivity with zero compromise, the zero compromise is so important because if the champagne is missing anything in terms of flavor, in terms of style, in terms of character, um, Customers that are used to drinking champagne will know it uh, and they will mention it. And we have a lot of folks that end up putting back whatever bottle they have in hand back once they've tried Madame Zero. So it's been a, amazing feedback and, and really exciting. So just for people who haven't tried it yet or haven't seen it in the market, you know, how do you kind of compare the the, the flavor or, or maybe talk about what you were trying to achieve sort of from a flavor perspective versus the classic champagne. So it's a great question, Eric, because with our style, uh, the way we normally introduce customers to it is I think fundamentally it's explaining this transparent approach we have, which is we only grow beautiful Chardonnay Um we extra age at five years. Normal champagne is 12 to 24 months, and you're dealing with a lot of uh, dark fruit, typically Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, with uh, the minority being Chardonnay. Um, what that lends itself to is the Chardonnay drives a lot of this beautiful honey on the nose, and then you have rich, ripe citrus, passion fruit, lemon on the palate with an extremely clean finish. It doesn't have that bitter finish that you normally get with the dark fruit champagnes that don't have uh, the extra aging associated, which we're aging five years here. So um, a normal champagne though, that's non-vintage with that dark fruit, um, typically has a very, very distinct, distinctly different taste with the bitterness that you get. Um, so the finish is where we really stand out, but I think more importantly, that finish leads to this clean, this cleanness on the palate where uh, there's a lot of chefs in the city that have been doing food pairings and it, it lends itself to being paired with an array of different dishes. Uh, and that's where the champagne really excels is with food. Yeah. So maybe, maybe talk about like a couple of the restaurants where people can find this and, and what are they pairing? Cause I mean, you know, obviously I think, you know, champagne and oysters or champagne and caviar, but, um, but, but it's a surprisingly food, food friendly wine. So, so maybe just what are, what are just a couple of the restaurants or your favorite dishes that you've, you've seen uh, around town? Yeah. So th there's an array of restaurants really ranging from, uh, from Mastro's to Brasserie 19, uh, the likes of uh, Potente, DeMarco, um, and we, we really do default back to what you mentioned, Eric, which is um, 
I'll start with the seafood side and on, on, on that, that end of the spectrum. But uh, we really do enjoy oysters um, at a different level with the champagne because we don't have that bitterness. It really goes well uh, with some fresh lemon on an oyster. The champagne has a bit of that lemon citrus uh, going on. So it's a, it's a decadent pairing with fresh oysters. Um, grilled or charred octopus is quite nice. Potente has a beautiful dish with octopus uh, that we highly recommend. It's quite nice. Um, and they have some very nice caviar that they're pairing with the champagne as well at Potente. Uh, but caviar is definitely a very nice go-to uh, with Madame Zero. Uh, 1751 Sea and Land um, has uh, some very nice seared scallops um, that go extremely well with the Madame. Um, and then Brasserie 19 has some really nice crudo, uh, which, as we all know, with champagne, beautiful sushi, uh, the likes of, of crudo is extremely nice with the champagne, very well balanced uh, with that sort of dish. So, um, there's really an array of different, I think a bit, uh, different seafood dishes that go well, um, as well as grilled fish, but we, you know, I love champagne. I could, I can drink it with nearly anything on any menu, even at the likes of Mastro's. I could, I could likely have a glass or two with, uh, with a steak, but that's just me. <laughs> um, but it really just depends on the individual. There's a lot of great pairings out there, though. It's it's quite – I will say it's extremely versatile in terms of style. Tell me about your, your future plans for this. I mean, it's – you know, we met – I should say, you know, we met because you were doing a tasting at Riata Cellars, the new wine shop, wine bar in the Heights. You know, obviously, you're, you're very active in the community. You're, you're really kind of hand-selling this to people. I mean, you know, what is the next – six months to a year look like for you in terms of getting the word out about, about this product? So right now we're really focused on, uh, on getting out into the market with the team. You know, I'm very hands-on with my team. I'm very hands-on um, with presenting the product uh, into the market and with supporting our, our customer relationships. So beyond just the restaurant community in Houston, uh, we're also moving into the Galveston community as well as Woodlands. Um, our goal right now is to move into the Dallas market with our retail partner, which is Specs, and and then also move into Austin and San Antonio. Uh, and that's here between now uh, and the holidays. So our goal is to start moving in that market retail, and then we're going to start moving into that market uh, or those, I'm sorry, those three markets um, on a uh, on-premise basis with restaurants. Um, our our goal right now as well is to get our rosé uh, out later this year, which is a beautiful style. So that's that's one of our our key goals uh, is to bring the rosé in for the holidays, which is age 42 months, and it's Chardonnay driven with our, our beautiful Virtu Chardonnay. It's 90% Chardonnay, 10% Pinot Noir. Um, but it's a, a delicious rosé with a bit of strawberry and freshly picked wild cherry um, to kind of balance out the citrus of that Chardonnay. So um, that's going to be really exciting to get into the market. We have plans to move uh, into the east and west coast. Um, and those are in the next 24 months. Uh, the next 12 months, though, is really focused on getting uh, the Texas market um, solidified and then to continue that growth, both east and west coast, which our vintage will roll out uh, in the next 24 months. Um, so you're probably asking, well, your strategy isn't to be everywhere. And that's that really is the case for for what we are. We're we're very much an artisanal craft champagne brand. And we believe we need to be in the right places um, in the right states. We don't really feel a need to be everywhere um, because at the end of the day, it's all about quality over quantity with what we're offering the market. Very good. So I, I know you can't, you know, retailers set pricing, but, but kind of what can people typically expect to pay for a bottle and, and what are maybe two or three of the locally owned wine shop, right? You mentioned specs. Is that the only place we can get it or are there other places? 
Yeah, so we're working with specs, and our pricing is going to be around the $60 mark for our non-vintage. Uh, our rosé will be around $70. Um, and ultimately, with Specs being one of our partners, we are also working with the likes of Rayada Wine Cellars in the Heights, which is a, a great little boutique wine shop that opened here recently, uh, working with Killer Vino, uh, Premier Fine Wine and Spirits. Um, and then in the River Oaks area, we've also moved into Central Market. Um, so those are just to share some, shed some light. Those are some of our retail partners. Uh, we're also in the Woodlands as well as down in Galveston uh, and out in Katy at the Specs location, if, if anyone's a bit outside of Houston. Well, great. Well, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you want to discuss? No, I think I think we cover the bases, but I think one of the, the other areas, though, that's that's really important to me as a consumer is, um, you know, it's nutrition and I'm very focused on fitness. And one of the drivers that I didn't really allude to earlier is that we are the first brand in the world out of France with nutrition on the label. Uh, and ultimately that reveals um, that we have less carbs, less calories, and we're less than half a gram of sugar um, per glass. And for some consumers, they don't want to look at the label when they're the back label when they're drinking because they're enjoying the moment. For others, they still want to be health conscious. And they want to enjoy what's in the glass. They also want to understand what's in the glass. And for us as a brand, that's something that's very important to us is being extremely transparent with our customer base. Um, and it's something I think that uh, the market deserves to know. Right. And and I think people want, you know, I think they're used to that transparency, you know, in their food, right? Restaurants list the farms that are their suppliers. You know, certainly menus have calorie counts and other information. I, I think that, I think, you know, that, that level of education, I think, uh, I think a lot of people will find that very appealing. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, for some folks, I, I think whether it's someone that is into keto diet, someone that that's just watching their carbs or someone perhaps that only wants to have a glass here and there, um, uh, really driven by the fact that, uh, maybe, maybe they're, they're close to diabetic. Um, I think that, I think it can be really helpful and I think it's quite important. So, so that's worked out really well for us, um, you know, including that, because I, I think that's, that's something that um, is, is kind of setting us as we try to redefine champagne and we, we set out to redefine champagne. I think that in addition to our transparent approach of single grape, single village, you know, extended aging and transparency on those facets that are more important from a sommelier standpoint I think the nutrition is equally as important uh, as a facet of transparency for the end consumer. I think that's all well said. Um, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Matthew Massey, what is your favorite non-champagne varietal of wine to drink? Chianti. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Coldplay. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Ooh, this is a tough one. Mexican pizza, do they still make that? They Taco brought Bell? it back. They brought it back. You're oh, safe. there we are. <laughs> All right. What is your who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Lajuan. All right. You're a UH guy. That makes sense. All right. And then finally, when you go to a pizzeria, what are your go-to toppings? What do you like to get on your pie? It's a pepperoni. All right. Give us the website and the Instagram and all that stuff. How can people, how can people follow what you're doing with uh, champagne, madam, Madame Zero? Website, madamezero.com. And our handle for Instagram as well as Facebook is Champagne Madame Zero, Z-E-R-O. Awesome. Matthew, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Eric. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.